0: Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today's extra episode comes in two parts. We caught up with Tara Westover this week to find out where she is and what she's thinking. And we're also going to replay you the interview we recorded with her a couple of years ago about her book, Educated. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books the only magazine willing to ask the questions that keep you awake at night and answer them too, even if it takes 10,000 words. Is it okay to have a child in the age of climate crisis? Where next for the coronavirus? Was it a hermit crab that ate Amelia Earhart? You know where to go. Talking Politics listeners get to subscribe for a world-beating rate using the URL lrb.me slash talk. They'll even send you a free copy of Sinomania, writing about China from the London Review of Books. Just go to lrb.me talk. For people who don't know her, Tara Westover is the author of Educated the Publishing Sensation of 2018 and indeed still today. Her story is that she didn't go to school. She grew up in very unusual circumstances in Idaho, in a Mormon survivalist family, and she ended up with a PhD from Cambridge. I spoke to her earlier this week on Tuesday. She's currently in upstate New York. This conversation refers to a few things in the book, and there's a much fuller conversation to follow it. But I started by asking her, as I've been asking many of our guests, where is she and what has she been doing?
1: So I am staying at a friend's house in Germantown, upstate.
0: Upstate New York.
1: Yeah, upstate New York. I came here about two weeks ago and haven't gone out for a week. I just went to the grocery store. But otherwise, I I haven't really gone out except to walk my dog in the woods.
0: Do you have a sense of how regulated things are? If you were more out and about, would people be stopping you? Is there a police presence?
1: Well, I, I didn't go out the first week much at all. And then I started to run low on the things that you need, you know, food. And, and I, I was I was short of toilet paper, which I'd been ignoring the run on toilet paper because I thought it was kind of funny. But then I actually... But then you ran out. <laughs> but then I ran out. And so I did the thing where the store opened at 7 and I thought, I'll get up at 6.30 and I'll get there at 7. fortunately, I did not make it at 7 because I wasn't committed. So I got there about 7.15 and... It was kind of eerie. I mean, there were. I went to the toilet paper aisle. I got the very last one, which is kind of amazing. Uh, but yeah, there was just clearly something had occurred there. <laughs> and later, I found out from when I was checking out that there had been state troopers there that morning because there were so many people waiting, uh, and that when it opened at seven o'clock, everyone had just pushed in. So when I got there at seven fifteen, there were a lot of people, and it, there was it had a weird vibe, but I didn't actually see any police or any crowd or anything. But according to the people working at the grocery store, the state troopers have started showing up every morning at seven to kind of control the crowd. So that was, I was glad I missed that. that. That seemed like a fine thing not to, not to
0: participate in. And did you leave the city? Were you leaving the city anyway? Or did you leave to get away because of what's going on now? I
1: think I kind of a combination. I wanted to get out of the city and I'm thinking about going upstate and then When my friend went up, I just thought, you know what, like I might as well just go with her now. So I got out kind of earlier before there was a real rush to get out, which I think was good. But yeah, it was kind of a combination. I thought you you could just shelter in your apartment, I think, and weather it. But I did not grow up indoors. So I felt like for me to be trapped indoors for three months, I knew I wasn't going to deal with that very well. And I thought... I'm okay not seeing people and I'm okay not going to parties and I'm fine working from home. That's my normal life. But I do need to be able to walk outside. You know, everybody has their priority. It's been kind of interesting to see what people need, We you know what they really need or what they think they need. And for me, I thought I, I will be a much better off if I can just walk outside every day.
0: So that touches on what we're going to talk about, which is the impact that this is having on people whose expectation is that school is the essential part of their lives and that applies to both parents and children. Parents who are discovering that they are at home and in some sense now responsible for a while for their kids' education and kids who are discovering that they are no longer going to be going to school and they are either themselves or with their parents responsible for their education. So the conversation that we had, it was two years ago now, about your book Educated It touches on your own experiences, but you also talk about what education means and about the ways in which our routine expectations of it have become a bit thin and narrow. What's your feeling now when you... I mean, this is happening all around the world as well, even as we speak. I think India has just locked down. All over the world, there's a universal new experience which is not going to school. Is it an opportunity, do you think, for people to rethink what education means?
1: I think it could be an opportunity, but I also... Think that whether or not it's an opportunity depends so much on your situation. So I I can't remember. I read this. I think online somewhere. Someone had said that the the coronavirus was the great equalizer, and I feel like it's just so not that. (laughs) It seems like everybody's experience of it is so completely dependent on their situation relative to their work or how much money they have, how much stability they have. Do they have childcare? Do they have a job that will um, lay them off promptly? Are they going to be able to get some kind of severance? Are they going to be able to get unemployment? That is just, you're going to have a really different experience of this virus, depending on the answer to those questions. I I mean, the people I worry about, I guess, are the the vulnerable parts of the population. You know, 78% of U.S. workers I read yesterday live paycheck to paycheck. What does that mean? when people can't go to work. And how are people going to go to work, even if they have jobs where they're allowed to when the schools are closed, and they can't afford childcare. So I I feel like people are going to experience this lockdown in really different ways, depending on how financially secure they were when it began. But for people who, who aren't completely uh, vulnerable and aren't occupied with just the, the task of surviving and of finding a way to make enough money and take care of their families. I think there could be an opportunity there. There's an opportunity to learn in a really different way. I mean, I didn't get a traditional education. I got a pretty weird education. I've noticed myself, and I'm not school-aged, but I've noticed there's been a nice smashing of, of the old routines that I think we all got trapped in. I think especially with email and technology and social obligations. I, I've i just noticed this last week, especially I'm reading a lot of things I don't usually read. i cooking things. I, I looked up how to make two different kinds of squash last night because I had a lot of squash and I hadn't made squash since I lived in Idaho. It's been like 12 years. So I was making <laughs> squash. I was walking and seeing all these birds. I didn't know what they were. So I went online and got a, a book about different birds of prey on the East Coast and what am I looking at? And I just think that's a different way to approach education, which is to say it's an old way. It's um, where something, you learn about something because it's immediately relevant to your life. So you go learn about it rather than proceeding on a kind of scheduled abstract curriculum. Or even if you're not in school, you know, what you spend most of your time learning and reading about or things that are far away, but that you see online might be interesting. Uh, I've been kind of enjoying returning to a more physical way of learning things that I just want to know how to do. I think there's a kind of general unskilling that is taking place where people do the same things over and over again. And it's going to be interesting for people who don't usually cook, have to cook for themselves, for people who don't usually clean, have to clean for themselves don't usually spend so much time with their children are going to be spending a lot more time with their children. There's an opportunity there. There's also, I think, potential for quite a lot of loss. And uh, I think it will depend on how people react. You can spend all your time on Netflix or you could read. I think these are choices we got to make.
0: I completely take your point that you can't generalize. It's going to be hugely different. And a lot of it depends on people's personal situations, including how precarious their lives are anyway. For the somewhat better off There is this feeling, it's early days in this country, it's very early days since the school shut, that the job of parents is to somehow replace what's missing, Uh, that not being at school is a great loss, and that formal education is important, and it's important to keep up. And so people are downloading plans from schools and so on and trying to replicate, you can't replicate the school experience, but trying to get close to it, so that kids don't fall behind. The other opportunity would be to just think about it completely differently. Do you think we should um, open up a bit more? I mean, we still think of education as what happens at school. It's just the schools are shut. So you've got to repeat it somewhere else.
2: Uh,
1: I mean, again, I think it depends on how much time parents have. But I, I'm i not an educator. So there's a, there's got to be a massive caveat before I say anything where I say I'm totally unqualified to give you this opinion. But if you want it, I'll give it to you. If I had children myself right now, I would... I think I would want to really take advantage to have a totally different kind of education in this year. And I think I I would be preoccupied that they learn the basics that they need to learn to not fall behind. I wouldn't want them to go back next year and not have learned anything that they need to know. I think I would really want to do what my brother does. He homeschools his seven kids. It's kind of an amazing thing to witness the way that they learn and the way that they are able to. They're able to pursue things as they come up. I went traveling to South America once and I sent them back a bunch of pictures of glaciers, the Perito Moreno Glacier and, in Patagonia. And they then spent a month learning about glaciers And because the kids were really interested. And I just think there's a kind of education really can be curiosity and can be discovery. I think that, that if, if it's fueled by what kids are interested in their physical lives, and there's an opportunity to explore that for a year for some people. I don't think it should replace a typical curriculum completely, but I I do wonder if there isn't just a scope there for a different kind of learning. Like I said, I feel like I'm doing it myself. I was, I made carbonara three times this last week. I'm going to get very fat, but I make very good carbonara now, Um, (laughs) which I could not do before. And I just think there's a, there's an opportunity to say I have time and space a uh, mental space, not physical space, but mental space for the first time. And, you know, what do I want to learn? And what do my, what do my kids want to learn? I would be I would be tempted to try to do what my brother does just because I've seen the results of it. And I've, I've never met kids who are more curious and interested in the world than my brother's kids. I've just never, I've never met any. And I, I do think it has to do with that system. So if I were a parent who was sitting around staring at my kid, uh, yeah, I, I would be a little tempted to try that.
0: When we talked about it before, one of the things that you said is that education is at some level dangerous. It's risky. Parts of it, you really shouldn't know what's going to happen. The world has become more dangerous. Your own story, your upbringing, it had more danger in it than um, a safe, conventional upbringing. I think one natural response of people in a dangerous world is to want to keep the stuff at home safe. And that I think includes the education. Would you still say that we should be much more open to the idea that it's all dangerous and education is dangerous too?
1: I think what I meant by that is that I think education, if it's a real education, will involve change and change doesn't usually occur without some kind of cost. So if you're really going to be willing to open your mind and learn new things, you you might change your mind on some things and that might be uncomfortable for you. Uh, you think about the world is so ideologically split on almost every question there are many, many things that if you open your mind up, you might actually change your mind. And identity has become so caught up with ideology that might make life uncomfortable for you if you find that you don't agree suddenly on an important topic with people that you care about. At least that was my experience. But I, I think dangerous in this context with the virus is a really different, Is a, it kind of has a different resonance to it because I've noticed we're talking about vulnerable populations and different experiences of the virus, if you, if you have security versus if you don't. And I've been really interested that the people that I know who are head down, just not in any kind of panic, are, are the people who I think are, are the most vulnerable. And the people that I know who are uh, really quite protected and very unlikely to suffer any serious consequences are the ones who are having serious just crippling anxiety. I I, I don't know what's behind that, really, except I think maybe that there are some people who are used to having a lot of control. And I think that there is a whole other group of people who've never really had control over their lives. And this doesn't feel that different from the general loss of control they've been experiencing the whole time.
0: Because it's also true, particularly in the United States, for now, at the time that we're recording, that there's a big geographical divide, and it touches on the wider political divide in the country. This disease is striking the coasts, your east coast. New York is the centre of it, the epicentre at the moment. Also west coast, there are large parts of the country in the middle where the disease hasn't reached to any great extent yet. People talk about coronavirus as being a disease that, unlike other epidemics of the past, it doesn't really help necessarily to be rich. Uh, You can move, but maybe it's going to find you anyway. Do you think this experience has the capacity to bridge some of those divides between the different parts of the country or do you think it's going to just exaggerate them even further I mean what you just said made it sound a little like it is already exaggerating them a little further
1: I feel like it's exaggerating them because it's going to be it's just going to be such a different experience it's one where I, I do think wealth actually has a A huge impact on whether or not you're vulnerable to this virus. I mean, if you're someone who has a good job that you can work from home, you have the resources that you need to go out and buy a month's worth of food, and you don't even feel that. You can just buy a month's worth of food, go hold up in your house. You have a meaningful degree of control over whether or not you're going to get this virus. If you're someone who is living hand to mouth, you have to go to work because you work at a grocery store because you are uh, a nurse because you are you work as a cleaner for someone's house like all of these people who are still going to work because they need the money they can't buy all their food for a month and they can't not go to work so they are in in way more way more risk of exposure than people I know in New York and even even me I mean I'm sitting in a house upstate Uh, it's not my house it's a friend's house but uh, I'm so much better off than I would be if I were going into, you know, when I was 16 and I was working at a grocery store in town. I just think that was a matter of time before I got exposed to that virus. It wasn't it wasn't an if, it was a when. Now it, it's very hard to see how I would, how I would be exposed unless I'm really, uh, if I go out and I buy a bunch of groceries and I, for some reason, just touch my face a whole lot and don't wash them or don't wipe them down, then I could get it theoretically. Really, it, it's just, it's a difference. It's an economic difference. That's what that is. I don't have to work in a grocery store and I have a place I can go that is pretty safe.
0: In that world where you were working in a grocery store in Idaho, and as you say, many people don't have much experience of control over their lives, and this is just more of that. And as you also describe, and as we talked about in our conversation, which we're going to play in a second, in that world, there is suspicion of government and there is suspicion of the advice you get from government about how to live because it just doesn't seem to touch people's experience. Is that still your sense of how people are reacting now? Is there still that ingrained feeling that the official advice that's being given about this disease doesn't really touch how people live?
1: Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I've been watching that debate play out about you know. I think Trump tweeted maybe it was today or yesterday that we had to be careful that the that the cure or the solution wasn't worse than the actual disease and i think a lot of people on the left think oh he's so callous he he just is willing to trade people's lives for a healthy economy i would imagine that that looks really different if you think about somewhere like where i grew up in idaho i i think you've got a, a lot of people for whom losing their jobs is the end of the road in a really big way like 6 8 months of an economic downturn is not something they will bounce back from in their lifetimes. I know people who are still in debt working 60, 80 hours a week, two jobs, manual labor jobs, hard jobs because of 2009. They're still trying to dig out of that. So, I think for a lot of them, the risk is acceptable. They would they would choose the risk over the economic crisis. I don't say that that's my view. I don't I don't really know what my view is on it, but I think it looks very different if you are someone for whom uh, an economic recession or even a depression means that you don't get to keep your second home, versus you lose your home and become homeless or move into a, a house, move in with your parents or move into some kind of assisted housing, or it, that just looks really different. That's a very different feel. It is interesting to me that some of the people who are going to be the most exposed and the most they're going to pay the highest price. If we if we just say, "Oh, fine, we'll take the risk. Uh, those are the people who I think are living, they're living so near the edge that for them, they think the risk is worth it.
0: And does it extend to a belief that therefore the risks of the disease have been exaggerated?
1: I don't, I'd, I would surprise me if they misunderstood the risks. Maybe, the, maybe some of them do. Uh, I, I, it seems like we don't know exactly what the fatality rate is, but we have a a decent idea. It would surprise me if they are somehow ignorant of that because I myself am ignorant of that. I don't know. It's like, is it one percent? Is it nine percent? I'm totally confused by what the death rate is myself.
0: Yeah, and, and genuinely we don't know, but it's um it's nearer one percent than nine percent, but we don't yeah, know.
1: Yeah. So I just it's very hard for me to say, oh, they they're they don't, they don't seem to have the facts when I'm sitting here, I have no idea what the facts are. My guess is that many of them just understand that it's a one percent fatality, but For them, in their situation, that seems like a better play than um, long-term economic downturn, collapse. You know, another two thousand eight for them, for many of them, given that they've never recovered from the first time, is is just not worth it.
0: Talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Now a chance to hear the conversation that we recorded with Tara two years ago just around the time that her book was being published in the United Kingdom. We recorded this conversation in my office in Cambridge, back when that was still possible. It's still one of my favorite episodes of Talking Politics and I know it is a lot of listeners favorite episode too. I should probably declare a bit of an interest here. When I say Tara came to Cambridge and did a PhD, she did do it with me. Uh, I was her (laughs) supervisor and I have a very small walk on part in the book. These are not the most exciting bits of the book. But it's not, I'm not saying this is a must read because I'm in it. I'm saying it because it is an amazing book. And I'm just going to read a little bit of the Sunday Times review. It is the story of a young woman who showed the most remarkable resilience in the face of extreme poverty, rigid religious beliefs, violence and family betrayals. It is a beautifully written account of how she grasps the sheer enormity of the world and struggles to find her own place within it. The result is a memoir that is fit to stand alongside the classics. So it's a really good book.
3: They were nice to me.
0: (laughs) It's about everything. It's about all sorts of things. We're not called talking all sorts of things, although maybe (laughs) we should be. We're called talking politics. And it is in part a book about different political outlooks and also it's about your journey through very very different worlds and apart from anything else these are worlds where people see politics completely differently so if we kind of follow you on the journey this conversation is going to be one about how some of the politics played out in these different parts of your life but if we start at the beginning where the book starts where you grew up and it is a world overshadowed by religion but it also comes with a very distinctive political outlook too. How did politics look to your family when you were growing up? Well, if I were to sum it up,
3: I would say, so I was born the youngest of seven children. I was raised by a father who was something of a charismatic radical. So he was opposed to a lot of the institutions that most people would just take for granted. Public education, doctors and hospitals, anything to do with the government. And the reason that he opposed these things is because he thought they had been corrupted by something like Illuminati. So, my family just avoided these institutions altogether. And as an adult, I can see how bizarre this is. But when I was a child, nothing about the way we lived seemed strange to me. So, in terms of political outlook, I think from the family perspective, it's about how your experiences of something. I mean, if you don't have your own experiences of the world, what you believe about the world will be what other people tell you about it. And so, I had never been to school, not for a single day. And so, when my father said, that public education was part of a corrupt institution, part of a fallen world that brainwashed people to take them away from God. I believed that. I had no reason not to believe that. Same thing about doctors and hospitals. We'd never, we never went to the doctor. We never went to a hospital, not when we were ill, not when we were injured. You know, my dad had a junkyard and we were injured quite a bit, like the time my brother lit his leg on fire. It was covered in third degree burns and we, we treated that at home. With herbalism. And as far as I knew, that was the best way to do it. And same thing with the government. Like many of my siblings, I didn't have a birth certificate. When I was nine, I was issued a delayed certificate of birth. But before that, according to the state of Idaho and the federal government, I didn't exist. So when you don't have your own experiences, I think it's very easy for someone to come in and say, This is what the world looks like. And as far as you will ever know, that's exactly what it is.
0: So what did your father think would happen to you if you went to school? So you, you would be corrupted by this? evil worldview but what did he actually think that meant?
3: I think he believed that schools were again part of this very large-scale conspiracy whether it's the Illuminati or the New World Order he had a lot of different names for it but I think he believed that there were these subtle corrupting influences that had taken root in in public education again in in the medical establishment as he would call it so I think he was worried that we would be brainwashed effectively I think that was the concern.
0: And you would therefore abandon him and his way of life. I mean, that was part of the fear that you would, if you went to school, you would end up moving away.
3: Not just moving away. I think I think, moving away might not have occurred to him actually because people don't tend to move away from where I'm from. But I think, I think his fears were more basic, you know, that we would go to a doctor was a fear of his because he believed that they were corrupt. I think he, at his worst moments, maybe even believed that they were trying to do harm. And he also believed that there was a certain righteousness to not going. So this whole idea that you're on the path to God and you can so easily get off the path. And I should say about the religious aspect, my dad, I would say, it was, it was a, the vehicle for his particular kind of brand of paranoia. But I don't. I mean, the religion, I don't think, is is the reason behind it. My dad was Mormon. My whole town was Mormon. Everyone else in our town sent their kids to school, went to the doctor. You know, it's not a Mormon thing to be opposed to doctors and hospitals and education. That was very much a a my dad thing.
0: Because there's a kind of spectrum here, which is that suspicion of the federal government is quite a widespread view, Mm. particularly in the kind of parts of the states that you grew up in. So, yeah, not to send your kids to school is pretty extreme, for want of a better world. But the idea that politics and politicians and particularly what goes on in Washington is somehow this kind of corrupt other world thing that you need to resist, that was... I'm guessing, but that was not so unusual for the time and place you grew up.
3: No, it's kind of funny. I thought, when I was a kid, I thought that our town was full of, you know, communist, liberal, socialists, because that's what my dad said it was.
0: And then you came to Cambridge. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
3: and then I grew up, and I had a conversation with my brother recently, where he said this really bizarre thing to me. He said, somehow, when I was a kid, I remember thinking of everyone else in our town as city kids which my hometown had 200 people in it. It's this extremely isolated farming community in Idaho. And here's my brother, five, six, seven years old, thinking of these farm kids as city city kids. And for him, that was alienating because we thought, right, well, these are people that my dad described as socialists. Yeah, later. I remember when I was at Cambridge and I would return home and I would have conversations with them and I would realize. These are fairly right-wing Tea Party Republicans. But, you know, I had grown up thinking that they were communists. (laughs)
0: So there are bits in the book where you describe incidents that clearly overshadow other people's memories. And for you, they're there, but they're they're much more marginal. So one of them that really stands out is 9-11. Mm. So you remember 9-11, but you didn't know about the Twin Towers when it happened. What did you know about New York?
3: I'm not sure I knew very much about New York. Music was was a thing in my family, we, we really valued music, and we'd become slightly obsessed with the Les Miserables musical. And so I was aware that there was a city in the United States you could go to to see this play. And my brother, my older brother Sean, was a truck driver. And we had tried to hatch this plan where we could find loads from Idaho that would take us to New York so that we could see the show. And that was my whole experience of New York. It was the scene of this play. I definitely never heard of the Twin Towers. I, I didn't know anything about the Middle East, except as a kind of biblical, I mean, I would read the Bible and knew all about it in that context I think when the Twin Towers fell, for me and my family, it was more of a sign of the end of times, which we were always looking out for anyway. We'd been looking out for the end of the world for my whole life. So that just seemed like, no, this is really going to be it. It's really going to come this time.
0: How did you discover what came after the Twin Towers? So if this is the sign of the end of the world, what are the other signs then that your father was looking for? What was the, how did the news play out?
3: Well, I think if you're someone who's interested in all this stuff, I mean, the Twin Towers was a, was an interesting one because it was since nothing happened. And yes, there's a war, but it's very far away and you don't have any real experiences of it. And it just drags on and on and on. Other moments were much more intense in a way because they were packed together, like the Y2K experience, where my dad was sure it was going to be this day and then it wasn't.
0: Yeah, and you say he was, he was almost heartbroken he was on the of, turn of the millennium when the world didn't end, right?
3: Well, I think he had been... I would say, gently made fun of by people in our town for so many years and kind of mocked for that, for how serious he was taking these things and how, you know, he was telling people there was one gas station in the town. And he sort of said to the owner, you know, you need to really chain up your store. It's going to get looted, all these terrible things. And people kind of laughed at him. And I think that would have been a real reversal when that happened. We would have been the people who were prepared. We would have been the people with food. We would have been the people with fuel. We would have had means to communicate because we were ready. And I remember that night when I realized that the world hadn't ended and I went to bed. It, yeah, he seemed smaller to me than he had that morning because he responded to it in this kind of childlike, disappointed way. And I remember just feeling sorry, really, because I had always thought of him as this kind of Noah-like character who was following the Lord and, and doing what he should do, even even though everyone else was mocking him. And then it almost seemed cruel to me that the world hadn't ended, that God had denied him this thing that he that he seemed to deserve, I felt like, for how faithful he'd been.
0: So I talked to you a bit about this book when you were writing it. And I, I should say, I didn't know... So when I taught you, I didn't know your story. <laughs> <laughs> I don't lead with that. <laughs> uh, and so I, reading this book was a revelation for me too. But when we first talked about it, you thought that one of the things that you might do was explore the people who did go to school in your town and kind of, as it were, it's about education and it is a book about education, but about what happened to the people who are still living there, living now in Trump's America. Your dad's political views were pretty far along that spectrum that I described, but lots of people in Idaho and in your town would have been presumably or are now Trump supporters? Is yeah, French? Idaho
3: is, is quite Trump, yeah. yeah.
0: So what is your sense of the people of your generation, the ones who did go to school, who did go to doctors, but who grew up with that deep suspicion of federal government and other things? Are they, how do they feel about the state of America now? Do you have a, a sense of that?
3: I think a little. I like to think about political differences, especially in my town, political opinions in my town in terms of experience. So I think that there can be a tendency on the left to think that really it's a case of getting the evidence together and convincing people who they think of as ignorant of things that they think of as the truth. Again, I think I think it's so much more helpful to think about the experiences that people have. So one example of that, what I think of as a Republican tenet, certainly used to be—I don't know how much it still is—but I think it still is—that government is ineffective. If you live in Boston you have a lot of examples of the government not being ineffective. You have roads, you have schools that work, you have a healthcare system, you have any number of positive interactions with the government on a day-to-day basis. If you live in Idaho, you probably have two interactions with the government. Mostly it's gonna be speeding tickets, traffic violations, and the second major interaction they have is farm regulations that are handed down by bureaucrats and they don't always make sense. They often don't make sense. They're written by people who've never been on a farm. So I, I think this idea that you can just convince people you know, show them that they're wrong, I think it's just it's just a flawed approach because they're not wrong from their experience. Governments are terribly good at running cities. They're not so great at running the country in, in the sense of country being rural. The, the, the so, countryside, as we The countryside, saying. exactly. Like, they're not great with the countryside. And so, I mean, the rural schools is, is a particularly interesting case because it's not that they're bad schools, but they do have problems that are specific to being rural. Rural schools do really well on national exams. They do really well with graduation rates, but they really fumble with what they call transition and alignment, which is getting kids from high school into a university and getting them to graduate and getting jobs. And there's probably all kinds of reasons why rural schools struggle. I think one of them could be that for most rural kids that I spoke to, people in my town, the only person they'd ever met who had a college degree was their high school teacher. And a lot of times those high school teachers had had correspondence degrees and had never been to university. So you ask someone, there's one woman I interviewed who had gone to Idaho State to study communications and she dropped out after two semesters. And I asked her, what were you gonna do with communications degree? It took her a really long time to answer. And then she said, I guess I thought I would be a TV presenter. And her saying that really stuck with me because I thought, you know, she has no idea what she can do with this degree. That's the only visible thing. She doesn't have any concept of the many other things that you can do with this kind of education. So I think there's a general sense that people value education, that it helps. But I don't think in the specifics, I don't think they have the role models that they need.
0: So your story is remarkable because it doesn't include the going to school bit and it goes straight to the college bit. Do you think if you had gone to your local school, you wouldn't have wound up going to college?
3: I don't know. I'm not very good at counterfactuals. I couldn't possibly suss that out. I think there are things that I'm grateful to my parents for about my education and non-education. And I think they took it too far. <laughs> but I would say one thing that my parents believe and that they said to me and they said it often was that you can teach yourself anything better than someone can teach it to you which I think is absolutely true (laughs) And, and I have a couple I would say concerns about education the way that I hear people talk about it the way that I see it I've never experienced it in that way but the way that other people seem to have experienced it. And one of them is it does seem to be really passive in the way that we conceive of it. And if you go back to John Dewey and he talks about, you know, you have the social element, you have the individual element, or what society brings to education or what an individual brings to education. He talks about how there needs to be balance. It does seem to me that that's wildly out of balance right now and that the social is really overemphasized. And we think of classrooms as places where one person stands and sort of inflicts information on a group of other people. And I think what it should be is is a, is a place that people go to have questions answered. And there's almost a feeling that it's a conveyor belt. And you stand passively on this conveyor belt. And you come out the other side educated. And I'm grateful to my family that that idea was not in existence. It would never have occurred to my mother. When I decided I wanted to go to college and I said, right, I need to figure this out and I bought an ACT study guide and I opened it up and and I couldn't solve any of the math problems and this was of concern so I took it to my mother and I said mom they've made a mistake in this printing they have all these letters in here where are the the numbers and she said oh this is algebra (laughs) and I said can you teach this to me and she said not really I've kind of forgotten it Uh, but you know there was this idea that you yeah you can you know go learn it you have a book. go find a book we actually didn't have a textbook for algebra I had to go buy one but I do appreciate that idea because I think in a way we can and I hate the word disempower it sounds a bit cliched but I really mean it in the sense that I think we can convince people you can't learn things and it becomes true.
0: So yours was the active version of this you decided you really decided you wanted to go to college and you had to find the means to do it and so you went to BYU Brigham Young University, which is a Mormon, broadly speaking, a Mormon university?
3: <laughs> Not broadly, very much. <laughs> <It's coughs> very owned by much. the Mormon Church and it's 99% Mormon.
0: <laughs> okay, it's a 99% <laughs> Mormon university. So you're moving from this very small, closed community, basically your family, to, it's still, it's a good university, right? It's a, it's I a,
3: thought BYU was a really wonderful place yeah. in a lot of ways. I think it was the best place for me.
0: So what was the biggest, again, I'm trying to drag it back to the politics of this. What was the biggest gulf or shock when you came across people your age, students, not regular students, because this is a Mormon university, so it's going to be distinctive, but people who've had a much more conventional upbringing and how they saw the world and how they thought about the world and how they thought about politics?
3: Well, BYU is definitely a you'd say more republican place it's a very right-leaning state and it's uh, Mormons tend to be a bit right-leaning but that said I think that there's a stereotype that that Mormonism would be a very intellectually closed community and there's some sense in which that's true you know I did a degree in BYU and I never once heard a serious defense of feminism it never happened and there
0: did you hear serious attacks on Oh, constantly. Right. Yes. So it wasn't uh, just it wasn't just passive. They actually. Yeah, I
3: mean, if someone. I mean, you called had you some descriptions
0: f- in the book of. <laughs> if some someone moments.
3: called you a feminist, it signaled the end of that argument, and it also signaled that you'd lost. I mean, the first feminists I ever met were in Cambridge, and they sort of announced themselves to be feminists. I stared at them like they were exotic birds. I'd never, I'd <laughs> <laughs> never seen a feminist before, so BYU wasn't wasn't the place for that necessarily, but it had some important things that I think other universities don't. It's a really good place to ask questions and it's a really good place to have debate because Mormons have this wonderful thing where they're trying to save your soul and every debate and discussion begins with the assumption that we're all children of God. And I think in practice what that means is I think no matter how personal a debate is, you can you can be saying something that goes to the heart of who somebody is and offends them to the very core, but there's no breaking of charity with each other. There's no sense that now you're a bad person because we don't agree. And... You know, I think Mormons are often accused of being a cult and I would say one of the um one of the true signs of a cult right is sort of ideological purism and that you ostracize people who don't fit that ideological mold. And I would say I've experienced more of that in Cambridge than BYU. And I love Cambridge, but I would say BYU is not a place that you would get unfriended virtually or otherwise for saying something that didn't fit. There was a very strong idea of what the doctrine was and what was acceptable, but there wasn't a sense that you were a bad person or there was that you didn't belong there, you shouldn't be there if you thought something that didn't fit the mold. I'm probably going to get thrown out for saying that.
0: No, no, that's really... That, you, you've come into a constant theme of this podcast. We're going to come back to Cambridge as a cult, definitely. Oh, OK. <laughs> Good. Uh, there's lots that we could talk about there. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. I want to read you just one little bit of the book because it is... it really comes across strongly that BYU was a place that, to you, was full of possibilities you hadn't even thought of. So I'm just going to read about how you arrived at a kind of course of study which is the start of chapter 27. I'd come to BYU to study music so that one day I could direct a church choir. But that semester, the fall of my junior year, I didn't enrol in a single music course. I couldn't have explained why I dropped advanced music theory in favour of geography and comparative politics or gave up sight singing to take history of the Jews. But when I'd seen those courses in the catalogue and read their titles aloud, I had felt something infinite and I wanted to taste of that infinity. For four months, I attended lectures on geography and history and politics. I learned about Margaret Thatcher and the 38th parallel and the Cultural Revolution. I learned about parliamentary politics and electoral systems around the world. I learned about the Jewish diaspora and the strange history of the protocols of the elders of Zion. So that's a pretty broad education, (laughs) right? I wish I'd done that degree. (laughs) Um, What did they teach you about Margaret Thatcher? Can you remember? What was the BYU take on Margaret Thatcher?
3: I I mean, I think it was fairly positive because it was BYU and it was, you know, Thatcher and Reagan and BYU is usually... I mean, it's hard to generalize these things. The funny thing about BYU is you have a fair number of liberal professors, but they sort of hide it because they know that their students might not tolerate it.
0: So it's the opposite of most universities, (laughs) where where the conservatives are passing as liberals.
3: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So I don't know what he actually thought of Margaret Thatcher, but I know he wouldn't have offered. In that setting, you'd really alienate people.
0: And were you coming to all of this fresh? So Margaret Thatcher, did you know... about no i would
3: never heard of her before I had a vague my ideas of, of the UK ended with the American Revolution I mean I didn't know anything about it and we were mostly because it was a comparative politics class we were just studying the parliamentary system the fact that other systems exist and that there are advantages and disadvantages to both and that you know I think if you're American and you're raised in a certain sort of religious way of learning American politics the American Constitution is handed down by God, basically. And comparative politics was the first time that it was kind of mathematically shown to me. Oh, look, there are different ways of running elections and you can have runoffs and all these different ways. You can have third parties and here are the mathematical ways that this affects an outcome. And there are advantages and disadvantages to both. That there might not be one magic system.
0: And Did you feel that because, so it wasn't just that your education to that point had been active, but it was also that Things were fresh to you that weren't fresh to other people. Everything was fresh to you, right? Every every time you encountered a a subject as part of this really broad...
3: And it felt so relevant. I mean, I hadn't been numbed to education. I think there's another thing I worry about with the way people talk about education, because I think... I don't know if it's that they come to it when they're young and they don't care, or that so much of what an education is, our first experiences of it, not mine, but other people's, are sitting quietly while someone talks. When you're at an age where sitting quietly is really tough. And that wasn't it for me. When I encountered these things, they were extremely relevant. And so the stories of my first term at BYU, you know, one of my first lectures I went to, I raised my hand in a class, and I asked... A question I asked what something was because I'd never heard of the word and the class went silent and everyone was staring at the floor and of course the word was Holocaust and I'd asked what it was and I think people thought that I was making a really kind of off colored joke and I wasn't of course or that
0: you were denying it
3: yeah and I wasn't I had no idea what it was I was just actually asking what is this what I'm, does it mean I've never heard of this what is this word after that, you know, I I wasn't majoring in history at the time, but I saw there's a history of the Jews course and I thought, right, that might be for me. And so I took it towards the end of my time at BYU. So three, four years later, my dad visited me and we went to dinner and he gave this long lecture about the new world order and how the the Jews were trying to take over the world. And they were starting to they were trying to start World War III so that they could consolidate their power and all the rest of it. And while he was talking, I thought, I've heard this. And I realized I'd read that. I'd read that in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And I knew that that had been published at the turn of the century. And in 1921, it had been disproven as a forgery. And that that hadn't stopped Hitler four years later from quoting it in Mein Kampf. I also knew that my dad hated Adolf Hitler and would have been horrified that he was quoting him in any way. And it was the first time in my life that I felt like I knew what my dad was saying, and he didn't. And that was a very shocking reversal of the parent-child relationship because parents often have kids run into a room saying something they've heard and they don't really know what it means and everyone laughs. That's what the parent-child relationship is and this was a complete reversal of that and it would put us into conflict with each other in a a pretty serious way that would ultimately end with estrangement and I I tell the story of that because I think it's a story that has a lot of drama in it and there's a lot at stake and that was my experience of education, more than being this kind of passive, dead, institutionalized, sterile thing where you know what you're going to get out from when, you, you know, you put something in and you get something out. And that seems a bit creepy to me. This whole idea that what you do is you take a Republican, you put them in a university and you get a Democrat out kind of is distressing. I think is it shows there's something really wrong with the system. It shouldn't it shouldn't be that at the beginning of a process like that that you know where it's going to go not if it's a living vital unpredictable thing I think giving yourself over to an education should feel like a gamble it should feel like a terrible risk because that's what it is
0: and one of the themes that comes through is that that battle was constant and it didn't all go one way right it wasn't like you would go to college you would be taught something and you'd realize that your father was wrong often the view that you grew up with pulled you back against the things that you were being taught and actually it was often harder to move away from the stuff that you've been told as a child into this world I mean it comes through really strongly in it that this is a constant
3: it's a slow process and it isn't both ways. always yeah exactly I mean I think my first semester at Cambridge I think is was a pretty good example of that because at Cambridge I would say you know my first week in Cambridge I, I think it was in the Gibbs building I went to a lecture I think it was Duncan Kelly who gave this lecture on positive and negative Liberty that kind of moved the world for me a little bit because it had never occurred to me that the obstacles, the restraints that are on a person can be internal. But it's not just that you can have external restraints keeping you from doing something. There can be things, beliefs that you have that might be the most important thing. The most important restraints on you might be inside your own head. That had never occurred to me. Learning about that, it was it was interesting. That lecture, it was about a week later, someone sent me this Bob Marley song, and I'd never heard of Bob Marley because I'm going to always be behind on pop culture references forever. <laughs> but it was a redemption song, and I got really... I got really obsessed with that lyric, emancipate ourselves from mental slavery, none but ourselves can free our mind. And I listened to it over and over. And then I ended up on Wikipedia, which is where you go, and reading about the cancer that he'd had, that he'd been recommended to amputate the toe. And because he had the Rastafarian belief in a whole body, he didn't. And he died, and he was quite young. Reading that at that time, I realized I've never had my vaccinations. I've been saying for years that I think my dad's paranoid about the medical establishment, and I think he's wrong. I've renounced his world, but I'd never quite found the courage to live in this new one. And so that was a big moment for me where I took a big step forward. But at the same time, I mentioned I had encountered feminism at Cambridge for the first time. And I did. And I read all of these kind of feminist books. I started with John Stuart Mill, Mary Wollstonecraft, and I... I inched towards the second wave, but that was a bit much for me. I wasn't ready for that. (laughs) uh, But, you know, John Stuart Mill in a lot of ways was this earth-shattering moment. He has that that line that I love where he says, of the nature of women, nothing final can be known. And, of course, I had been raised in a way where it was very much thought that the nature of women is known and the idea that women are this, they're loving, they're nurturing, they're not ambitious, they are all of these things was very much a part of how I conceived of myself. And it was a struggle for me because I actually felt like I had quite a lot of those attributes that I'd been told were not natural for me so when I read that the nature of women nothing final can be known I yeah it moved the world in a way but in a way it really didn't because I went back that Christmas and my family was a family that had been infected with violence especially violence against women and I witnessed a a violent episode between my brother and his wife who was my age and I imagined that she would just be embarrassed and that what she would want was to cover that up. And so I did. And there was no lecture on feminism. There was no showing of female power. There was no lecture on women's rights or human rights or any of that. Actually, what I did is I let my father deal with it because he was the patriarch. And in my mind, it would have been entirely inappropriate for me to supersede his authority. Even though there was this wing of my mind that was opening up that had started to think he was wrong.
0: So you ended up studying, we did this together, 19th century political thought. So John Stuart Mill was a starting point. And one of the the connections that you were trying to make, or you ended up trying to make, is between that that world that Mill comes from and the fact that Mormonism and other utopian movements of the time were also trying to rethink everything, really. Um, Just say a bit more about what drew you to that. I, I kind of half know the answer, but even I don't completely know the answer. Why did you end up wanting to write a PhD about 19th century utopian thought?
3: I'm not sure I know the answer either. So so no one knows, I, so. think, <laughs> I think it's probably buried in the dark, frightening recesses of my head. But I think I was very at home in that century, in a way. I mean, I had grown up. We had books in my house, but we didn't have... We didn't have a ton of books, and if we did, I didn't read them. What I did read were religious tracts. I read the letters of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, and I read their lectures, and I I read all of that kind of thing. So I was really at home in the language of the 19th century because that is when the first Mormon prophets that are really venerated in their religion had been writing. I think, I mean, that religion was—it was my religion, and that century was the the birth of that religion. I think I felt like I needed to understand it when I left BYU— I'd never really met anyone who wasn't Mormon. If maybe two or three people for a few minutes, I'd met people who weren't Mormons. But no one in my life wasn't Mormon. But I had begun to wonder if I was. And I wasn't sure whether I was. And the reason that I thought maybe I wasn't was was polygamy. Because in the the history of the church, we'd had this practice of polygamy. And and that was a huge issue for me. But I also felt like it wasn't something that I could just throw over. It was such an important part of my family's heritage and legacy and I'd had a great great grandmother who was a a plural wife and had sacrificed an enormous amount to get our family to the United States so they could be good Mormons and so it was something I think I felt like I had to investigate very thoroughly so that I could in my head at least tell her I, I, d- I didn't take the decision entirely lightly.
0: You said earlier I'm going to come back to the cult question so Mormonism is not a cult and Certainly when you were right and I I learned a lot about it from reading what you wrote about it, but the ideas, the 19th century ideas that found the movement have a lot in common with lots of other utopian movements, including some that end up being radical socialism too. Um, And all of them have a slightly cultish aspect to them, and some of them literally become these closed (laughs) communities. But the ideas themselves are in some ways remarkably open and Mm -hmm. really experimental. I mean, that's the other thing. That period of political thought was amazingly experimental. Hmm. So now we're sitting in Cambridge University. Um <laughs> a, great, a great university, <laughs> lots of people doing lots hmm. of different things. But your sense of it, which I kind of partly share, is that and this relates to contemporary politics too, is that it's it's a bit closed off from the full world of experience. Is that still your sense of you live in Cambridge now, right? You're not yeah, at the university live but you live in the town.
3: It is. I mean, I would never say this is a cult, this isn't a cult. But I do think it's useful to say this is an attribute we think of as as almost defining of a, of a cult. And it does seem odd to me that sitting in a place like Cambridge, we'd say to Mormons they're a cult, when we ourselves tend towards that, I think, quite a bit. So I don't want to make any pronouncements about who's a cult and who isn't. But I would say our ideas about education are really passive, and I think they are. Another thing about the way people talk about education that I don't understand or that troubles me is that I think it's most often talked about as a kind of social advantage that you get an education so you can get a better job so you can make a living and I think to talk about it that way is to essentially reduce it to a privilege and for some bizarre reason we accept this and we accept that access to a good education is going to be something that separates certain kinds of people from other kinds of people and then that leads I think really quickly to education becoming a kind of identity itself a kind of class identity, and people with a specific identity have different interests than other people, they have different experiences, and that really troubles me. And then I think, then going back to the cult question, I think you can get to a place really easily where universities themselves are kind of dead zones for free debate, actually, because of these things like, um, for example, I think if you if you think education is a privilege, and that some people deserve it, and that other people don't. You're going to be quite affronted when people turn up in your classroom that you think don't deserve it. And maybe that will be because they're prejudiced, maybe because they're sexist, maybe because they're racist. Whatever it is, in your mind, they don't deserve to be here, and, and you do. And I think the idea of a safe space can kind of be born from this. There are good reasons to have some safe spaces, but the idea that a whole university should be safe. I don't think anything about education should be safe. So I I worry about that. I worry about this idea that certain types of people don't belong in classrooms because they're prejudiced and bigots. It's also logically a really ridiculous thing to think, because if there's one place that you would want to gather up all of your prejudiced, racist, sexist people, I think it would be put them all in classrooms. It's a really wonderful place for them. So I'm concerned that when it comes to the difficult things, because of that That mechanism to ostracize people, unfriend, I think is so strong in a place where education is an identity and certain people deserve it and other people don't. And we will exclude them if they don't meet this puritanical ideological criteria. I mean, take something really difficult to talk about. Like a few weeks ago, there was the um, Aziz Ansari fiasco that really divided people and there's a lot of really difficult things to talk about with that story having to do with sexual assault and female empowerment and whether women are free agents or whether they're victims all of this kind of stuff is really hard to talk about if I'm being honest with you I would be more comfortable casually mentioning that at the dinner table of family of mine who recently defended Trump to me after Charlottesville than I would be at most dinner parties in Cambridge
0: wow well. There's so much that we could talk about that comes out of that. But I'm going to just ask one, because it is something that we talk about quite a lot on this podcast. It's a feature of contemporary democratic politics, and it relates to what you just said about education being a kind of proxy for class or or turning a group of people into an interest group. So it is the big divide in contemporary politics. Whether someone went to university or not turns out to be the strongest marker of the likelihood that they voted for Trump or against Trump. Voted for Brexit or against Brexit. So, Cambridge, part of the reason it, let's agree it's not a cult, but it's quite a bubble town, is that it, it has a worldview which is pro European, broadly cosmopolitan, and therefore very remain, surrounded by bits of the east of England which have a very different view. And you only have to go five miles one way or five miles another way. And the fact it's a university town is a huge part of that because you see this with university towns all over the UK. You see it in the states too, right? Famously, it's the kind of Austin, Texas yeah. question. Cambridge is is Austin, and Cambridge here is Texas. If you know what I mean. So you've probably seen more of the range of people's experiences of education. You've you've had a pretty diverse college education, right? as you say, BYU to Cambridge and Harvard was the other Cambridge was thrown into that mix too. Yeah. I agree with you. It's really dangerous, and it's really dangerous for democracy. So I'm going to ask you a little question to end with. So what do we do about this, right? How, how if this is the new divide, a kind of class divide of a sort, but it's not exactly a class divide, but the educated and, not the uneducated, but people who, who have got gone less far along the ladder, suddenly are kind of pulling in different directions. And so to go to college in the States says something about you and to vote for Trump says the other thing about you where's the hope in this I don't normally ask the hopey question yeah you're asking me to
3: solve the education crisis no solve democracy solve democracy by way of the education crisis just just, at the end yeah but from the 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 range of things that you've
0: seen even that BYU Um, experience which is really interesting which is you've seen the the conservative version of this which in some ways is more tolerant
3: I find BYU yeah I'm more comfortable with the intellectual environment of bYU than i than i am with cambridge In a lot cambridge, of ways would you count harvard as well i would yeah and i i mean and i had wonderful experiences at harvard i had wonderful experiences at cambridge there's so many things about cambridge that are great but there's something going awry i think conceptually with what people think an education is and i don't know if, how to fix it is a massive question but i think
0: Or how do you bridge it? What are the bridges between And I don't know as much
3: about the UK education system, but I think we'd have to take this idea that education isn't a privilege and that education is for everyone really seriously. And in the US, that might mean some fairly radical things. I mean, right now, funding for schools is tied to your zip code, which effectively means that certain schools are awash in money and other schools can barely get by. If we're serious about education being something everyone should have access to, because if education is about making a person, that's not a class issue. Everyone should have access to the materials to participate in the creating of their own mind if we're serious about that there's no reason to fund some schools more than others not if they're public institutions that doesn't make any sense so I think there's practical things you can do to, to send that kind of message and then the the conceptual side of it I think the passivity thing for me is really concerning and I don't again I don't know if that's because people start too young and by the time they are old enough to to start Caring seriously about intellectual things, I worry that they do. I worry that by the In this time country is
0: full, which is I worry that crazy. by the
3: time they're old enough, I mean, you think about your experiences of what a thing is, everything about what what is an education, and I think the ideas people have about it are not active and they're not interesting. They're passive things: chalkboards, exams, endless exams. They're I, not chalkboards
0: now, they're digital interactive <laughs> digital, whiteboards. Whatever, but it's a lot passive. of
3: sitting quietly and, and being told things that you don't actually care about. And I think the, the passivity thing for me, I just really worry about it. And I I worry that our ideas about education, again, as this conveyor belt, make it a very safe, sterilized thing. And I think that ha- that just has to change. I mean, my own experience with education is that it is this living vital Quite dangerous thing, and I think we have to go back to a a time where we actually believe that education is powerful. I think people love to say education is power, but I don't think anyone believes it. I think especially the people who say it don't believe it.
0: And do you think especially the people who have it don't believe
3: it? I think especially the people who have it don't believe it because because they're experiencing this weird version of it where you know what you're going to get, and it's it's a factory in a way. And I think if there's a a thing that I want to say about my own experience, my own story with education, is that. You know, I think education is powerful, but power means change and change can mean calamity. And that was kind of my experience in a way. It was it was good calamity and it was bad calamity, but I mean, I lost a lot because of my education. I lost a lot of members of my family. And I think for me to talk about education in any other way besides calamity, even though I'm aware it's probably uncomfortable for people to hear me talk about, you know, the calamitous power of my education, it probably really annoys people. But I think to talk about it in any other way would be to deny its essential potency and to deny that it's a living thing, that you can't control it, you shouldn't be able to control it. If you can control it, it's propaganda.
0: In the two years since that conversation was recorded, Educated has gone on to be one of the best-selling, most widely read, and most widely acclaimed books of its time, its fans include Bill Gates, Barack Obama, and many, many people. I hear from them a lot. Tara must hear from them a lot more than I do. If you haven't read it, do read it. It's wonderful. If you want to buy a physical copy, please get it from Waterstones or one of your independent local bookstores. We'll be back in our regular slot on Wednesday night, catching up with Helen about where we are now. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics.
2: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.